Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. What does a quiet, unassuming 17th century Dutch lens grinder banished from Amsterdam's Jewish community have to teach us about the modern world? Well, According to philosopher Susan James of Burbeck College, London, quite a lot, actually. The lens grinder in question is, of course, Baruch or Benedictus Spinoza. And like many current thinkers, Susan believes that a close reading of his thoughts can greatly assist us in better understanding and appreciating a wide range of issues of contemporary relevance, from the nature of community, to political and religious diversity, to even a greater appreciation of and respect for the environment. I thought we'd begin by just talking about how you became interested in philosophy and how you became interested in early modern philosophy and history and, in fact, history writ large and philosophy writ large. Well, I went to quite an academic school and I think that at the end of my schooling I was searching around for something that I really wanted to study. I came from a very scientific family which um, was oriented in that direction and I wasn't but what sort of science? Um, my my father was a biologist, and my mother um, worked in uh, sort of psychiatry. So, and um, and they weren't terribly keen on me doing, you know, one of the straight humanities subjects like history or English. And I think, you know, uh, now I think differently about it. But at the time, I didn't especially want to do that myself. Hmm. So somebody suggested, well, why don't you? why don't you think about studying philosophy? Um, And uh, so that's, as it were, how I started to read a little bit. And and it seemed to to appeal to a kind of mixture of things I was interested in. It had a certain amount of rigour and toughness about its argument. It was also quite historical and quite literary. And so for those sorts of reasons, I suppose, or who knows what the real reasons were, anyway, I ended up applying to Cambridge to read philosophy. And uh, you, you read philosophy on your own when you were in school? Or did you? was this part of the, the academic curriculum? There was no philosophy taught in schools at that point. But we did have in, in my school a wonderful English teacher who was a very inspirational character in all ways. And she read a bit of Plato with us and things like that. So that was my, I mean, thinking that Plato was all wrong in the Republic was really the way I came into philosophy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he, he, I mean, there are some things, at least for me, when I first read the Republic that were terribly shocking when I was a young person because I thought here's this, this great canon of Western literature and there are things in there that are that are quasi-fascist that you just come across saying this is crazy how could anybody believe this sort of thing yes and you're expected to revere this figure yes exactly. <laughs> so that, yeah <laughs> and what, what did your parents think of that when when was philosophy okay was that something yes. that was... yeah no I mean 
I, I think that my parents, although this isn't how I've presented them, were very liberal. I think they were fine with it. And I, um, so that was how I started to study philosophy at university. And that was very strange because philosophy in Cambridge at that time, more than now, was extremely narrowly analytic. And so it was a very hard... I found it very hard to learn to swim in it, if you know what I mean. It didn't come naturally to me at all that yeah. these were the sorts of questions. And I think it was partly because you were just presented with problems and nobody told you or encouraged you to think about how did that come to be a problem? Or, you know, why should why did anybody ever get interested in that? And so I think to that extent my sort of um, preferences were always a bit historical. I always like to know sort of how it came about that the problem took this shape. Did you find any kindred spirits at, at Cambridge who were looking at things in the same way that, that you were, either as colleagues or, or uh, on the faculty? Well, I had one, um, there was one man who, who very briefly supervised me. He's called James Hopkins. And he really showed me sort of how this could be done by giving me a kind of historical map. We were talking about Kant, and so he said, well, you know, um, Descartes comes here, Locke comes here, Hume comes here, and, <laughs> you know, so there was, and, and I didn't really understand what he was talking about at the time, but I think that sort of, you know, I remember it. I think it was an important moment. Right. And then also um, there was an amazing woman called um, Mary Hesse, who taught us philosophy of science, and she, and then I went to work with her for my PhD. So what, was, what did you do in philosophy of science? What specifically? Um, she had just started working in the social in the philosophy of the social sciences, which was, you know, a kind of for her a new field, and nobody else much was thinking about it in philosophy around there at that point, and. Um, so I, I was interested in holistic forms of social explanation, and that was what I wrote about first of all. Mm. It's interesting because it's somewhat unusual, at least in my experience, for people to have remained at the same institution for from their undergraduate degree all the way through their their, their doctorate, and and my understanding is you you did this at Cambridge and and you did this within an an overall ambient climate, if I understand it correctly, that was oriented towards analytic philosophy to a rather strong extent. So I would have thought naively, knowing nothing, which is, as it happens, where I am, I would have thought that uh, you would have had extra motivation, perhaps, to go somewhere else or, or experience other other areas. But I guess moving into philosophy of social science was a, a sufficiently removed or, or, or not. You know, I don't think I was very sort of strategic or well organized about what I was doing. And um, I, I didn't actually stay in Cambridge all the time of my PhD. I mm. went as a kind of unofficial visiting student to Princeton. And although that wasn't exactly getting out of an analytical climate, it was tremendously um, educational and also very refreshing. I mean, I worked there, I worked there a little bit. I was helped a little bit by Richard Rorty and Raymond Goyce in particular, and that made the most enormous difference to 
um, you know, to my thinking about it. So what specifically were their influences? Well, for one thing, they were they were encouraging, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is always a great help when you're a PhD student. So, yeah, it's fine, you know, just carry on. And, um, and I think that both of them were interested in the work that I was doing with a little bit they you know they were nice to me about the work that I was doing which was about trying to as it were use some historical and social scientific sources to sort of examine philosophical questions i think they both liked that and raymond goyce at that time was working on the book that eventually became um the idea of critical theory so from him i learnt you know, just going to his classes and going to his lectures and things, I, I learned about critical theory for the first time. Mm. And he also was trying to subject this literature to a very narrow, you know, sort of philosophical lens. So that was helpful too, you know, what you can and what you can't do in that way. Did you have an opportunity to mix broadly with people at uh, both at the university and at the institute at the time across different disciplines? My sense is that was a particularly interesting and dynamic time to be to be at the institute, as well as to be at uh, at, at the university. I mean, I, I think I was incredibly privileged. I mean, because although I had absolutely no sort of official status in these things, I was sort of around, you know. So actually, I think I must have been one of those you know, one of those graduate students who's hanging about a lot and who's sometimes pretty annoying. <laughs> you know, but uh, but yes, I mean, at the Institute, Quentin was working with Gertz and Hirschman and Thomas Kuhn was there. And um, so that was quite astonishing. And the philosophy department was also, at that time, an absolutely astonishing department. David Lewis and... Tom Nagel, as well as the figures I've mentioned, and many more. So, um, so it was a fairly a wonderful, but also extremely intimidating intellectual environment. So, Spinoza, how did you fall under the, the Spinozistic spell? Well, Spinoza really came along quite a bit later when I had a lectureship in Cambridge, and. Um, by then I had I sort of finished the book that I wrote about the philosophy of the social sciences and I was sort of interested in just doing something quite different and I started to work on early modern epistemology. And um, anyway, I was given this job and one of the conditions of the job was the chairman told me that I had to give lectures on Spinoza. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Why? Well, because somebody had to do it, and he was fed up <laughs> of doing it, and he thought, well, no, she can do it. <laughs> and uh, and actually, that was the most enormous gift, because uh, I, I I didn't really know hardly anything about Spinoza, but I had to learn, you know, I had to try and learn fairly fast. I gave some pretty dreadful lectures, and um, I got very excited by it. Why early modern philosophy you said you were you became interested in that and then you were forced to give these these lectures and so forth but what was it about the early modern period that that appealed to you well first of all i 
I was interested in in um, issues about scepticism. Mm. Um, and at, at the time, I mean, as you know, I'm sure there was a great deal of interest in scepticism, as it were. That was a kind of really major historical topic and theme, as of course it still is. But somehow there was a sort of new um, impetus of work under the influence of Richard Popkin in particular. And so I think it was that, probably reading his books, that made me excited about that. So that's what I started to work on. But that, for me, was sort of a bit of a dead end. It turned out not to be exactly what I wanted to do. And one of the things that I was struck by, I think, um, about Spinoza was that scepticism really doesn't play a role in his philosophy. So he seemed to be like quite an interesting sort of counterexample. But I should say that at that point I was reading the ethics and, um, you know, so it was that aspect of his work that I was interested in. I don't think I really knew very much about the political work at that time. And the ethics is obviously a, a different as a professional philosopher, but nonetheless, the ethics is not easy. Um, so yeah. that's it's almost, it seems to me like jumping into the deep end. Uh, would, would you agree or disagree with uh, Totally with agree. I mean, I think there, there's a strange division of labor in Spinoza's studies, which is only just breaking down, which is, you know, that the philosophers read the ethics and the political theorists read maybe the TTP and nobody very much reads the TP. Mm. And that's no longer true, you know, but but I think it was very much like that. So that, you know, if you were studying Spinoza, that was what you read. And um, that was just sort of the bit of the way the canon was formed. So one of the things I've been interested in really is to, you know, along with lots of other people, is to try to break down those barriers. Right. So let's start um, at the beginning and give a brief description of um, the lay of the land, as it were. So here's this guy starting off living in Amsterdam and born in the 17th century. And tell me a little bit more about him and why what his life was like, first of all, uh, before we move on to some of his core ideas mm. and, and why we should pay attention to them today. Yeah. Well, Spinoza had rather an interesting life, I think. Um, he was born into the Sephardic Jewish community in Amsterdam, where his father, his family, was quite well established as a merchant. And um, he was the child of his father's second wife, he had a number of siblings, and he grew up um, in the local community. He went to the local synagogue school, and he was trained accordingly. Um, in his teens, particularly, um, well, really, perhaps throughout his, his young life, many bad things happened. He lost his mother, he lost two of his siblings, he lost his father. And it seems to be true, although there isn't much documentary evidence of this, that he took over his father's business, perhaps when his father died or became ill. And so he began his life as a merchant uh, in the import-export business of um, dried fruit from the Sephardic Peninsula in North Africa. Uh, which was a you know a, a, a big trade in Amsterdam at the time. Things like ginger were extremely popular. Um, 
And then, for reasons also that we don't quite understand, Spinoza seems to have fallen out with the synagogue, both intellectually and uh, financially. So he seems to have been in debt. He seems to have refused to pay his debts. He also, we suppose, may have been at loggerheads with them about philosophical and theological matters. And in his early 20s, he was excommunicated, fairly decisively excommunicated. The curse that the cherem that was uh, pronounced over him is quite, you know, sends a shiver down your spine. It's almost unprecedented, isn't it? I mean, in terms of its vitriolic nature, uh, my understanding is it was a particularly uh, emphatic denunciation. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I think people were excommunicated quite regularly, mm. uh, but it was a sort of disciplinary procedure, and then you said you were sorry, and they allowed you to come back. Um, but in this case, it, it seems to, it sounds pretty final, and it was final. Um, you know, I'm sure it's not true, as the, as the curse requires, that nobody ever spoke to him again. But his life seems to have taken a very different tack at that point, and he... Um, he seems to have started to train himself or could perhaps continue to train himself in Latin and in classical philosophy. And he seems to have gone to some lectures in Cartesian philosophy at the University of Leiden and set himself up as a sort of independent philosopher of no religious affiliation, which is an unusual way for somebody to live in the 17th century. I, I wanted to ask you a question about the... Um Latin, because this has always confused me, because he wrote most or all of his works in Latin, is that correct? Dutch and Latin, yes. Okay, There's an early work which is in Dutch, but everything else is in Latin, yes. And and he learned Latin from von Ende or, or whatever, the, I mean, I'm not sure people know exactly, but um, it seemed like he was remarkably competent and prolific to be able to write philosophical treaties in Latin. I'm sure his Latin wasn't at a Ciceronian level or whatever, but I, I'm in no position to say. But just the idea of somebody having only gone to night school or been with this guy for a couple of years and then writing philosophical treaties, that alone seems rather remarkable to me. Yes. It, I mean, it is. And his linguistic skills were obviously quite, you know, quite broad because he would have spoken Portuguese at home. He knew Dutch, he knew Latin, and arguably some other languages as well. Right. And But then if you think about it, Latin was sort of access to the intellectual community. You know, if you wanted to talk to people around the world, or if, you know, if he and Henry Oldenburg wanted to have a conversation, then it looks as though you've got to be able to have it in sure. Latin. Sure, but he didn't have, uh, my understanding is he didn't, as so many scholars would have, he didn't learn Latin in his formative years. He didn't. No, no, absolutely, you're right. Yeah, that's right. So he he learned Hebrew in his formative years, exactly. which came in handy as well. Right. But uh, Latin came later. Right. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt you. So so he was uh, excommunicated, and he began living this life of a of an independent scholar, as you say. Yeah, and. It seems to have had a very wide-ranging circle of sort of intellectual associates, all sorts of people from all sorts of different social and religious 
backgrounds who, as it were, came together usually in association with some religious movement. For example, a lot of Spinoza's friends were belonged to this thing called the Collegiate Movement, which was a sort of radical, um, minimalist form of religion, and so on. But but yeah, so he had quite a busy social life, you know, exchanging letters and um, visits with lots of people. And um, and to support himself, um, my understanding is he ground lenses, right? Is that... Uh... Yeah. I, I think it's difficult to know whether he really supported himself from grinding lenses or mm. whether he may have had some other funds, you know, already. Um, he lived he lived in a very modest way. You can go to see one or two of the houses where he lived and, um, you know, he just rented a, a room in somebody's house and there he was. But... Um, but he did grind lenses, and you know, at the time, as you know, that was a sort of gentlemanly, a, a, a sort of somewhat gentlemanly skill. You know, it was part of an entree into the scientific community, and there seemed to have been some of the leading local scientists, including Huygens, who really liked his lenses, and mm. um, so put, it put him in touch with them. One of the things that you've just alluded to is that also struck me as curious and interesting about the Spinoza story. So here's this person who seemed to be a remarkably independent person. I mean, somebody who had the ability to weather the storms of the society that excommunicated him, never went on bended knee asking for forgiveness or to be re-included in the, in the community in any way. They said, okay, fine, I'm on my way. <laughs> Thank you very much. I had a great deal, it seems to me, of intestinal fortitude to be able to live independently without being someone of obvious means, without being someone of obvious connections. And yet, it, and, and in many ways, had a very intellectually rigorous, to the point of being stark, outlook and at the same time was clearly somebody who had a plethora of friends, a circle of very fervent admirers. So much so that my understanding is one of the reasons we know so much about Spinoza and his writings is that um, after he died, that circle ensured that his uh, works would survive and they published uh, an opus, of, they published his, his writings. I think they burned some of his personal letters and so forth, which was unfortunate. But anyway, they, they, they certainly took great care to, to preserve his thoughts. And presumably these people were also involved um, in, as you say, corresponding with him, regarding him as a mentor. And, and I'm just not sure how that came to be because it seems all, it seems very different. You have this solitary, isolated, hugely rigorous, independent thinker over here. But at the same time, you have somebody who was obviously so well integrated into a circle, an intellectual circle, um, and, and, and clearly values friendship. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is interesting. Um, two things come to mind. I mean, one is that I think Spinoza was a pretty aggressive person. <laughs> he, he, wasn't, he would not give up, you know, so he fights the rabbis and he says, all right, well, excommunicate me, I don't care. And he publishes the TTP and he says, all right, vilify me, I don't care. You know, I mean, he, he just, there's a certain kind of um, obstinacy in him. But also, I suppose it's important that although 
he has a very, I mean, his his philosophy is not like anyone else's. Um, nonetheless, it is one of the, um, uh, what's the word? You know, the part of the advice of the philosophy that you should live, as it were, with the support of other people. Yes. So I think that. Um, I think that sometimes Spinoza is trying to live up to the demands of his own philosophy. And that, I mean, the philosophy says, you know, you won't be able to manage, you won't get anywhere if you don't have friends and people who support you and networks, as we would say. And so, and he does. And, uh, you know, the philosophy says you've really got to, as it were, cultivate the courage to live in the light of your own best understanding. And so maybe one should think, for example, about his decision to publish the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus as him sort of saying, okay, well, you know, that is what I understand, and so I've got to do it, even though it's in other ways extremely rash. Yes. Mm -hmm. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about that, and that set, set the stage. So my understanding is um, that he, he only published two works in his lifetime. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So the, the, he, he first published this uh, the, some analysis of the principles of Cartesian philosophy of the meditations in some in this uh, rigorous mathematical form um, and then he published the Tractatus although I think he did that under a different name right is that, yeah. is that, is that and correct? A, and a sort of false imprint why don't we take the um, principles of um, Descartes principles of yes. philosophy first yes. and so this is one of the first things that Spinoza does and it's written in a context where there is a very intense and full-blown conflict between philosophers who identify themselves as Aristotelians and are committed to a certain kind of scholastic Aristotelianism of a, um, a thoroughly Christian sort and philosophers who identify themselves as Cartesians. Cartesianism is kind of, the, you know, the new, the new thing and... Uh, in the Dutch universities, as you know, there's a big struggle about whether Cartesian philosophy can be taught. And um, one of the one of the reasons given against it is that you know Cartesianism propounds principles which are in conflict with principles supported not only by Aristotle but also by the Bible. And so there's a kind of a sort of philosophical and theological dispute going on. And this is very fierce. This runs from the 1640s when um, a, a professor of theology, very powerful guy at the University of Leiden called uh, Vutius, um, tries, to, tries to suppress Descartes' work. Descartes is extremely annoyed. Um, but... Uh, so what are his arguments? Tell us a little bit more about what's bothering him about Cartesian philosophy and about Descartes from a religious perspective. So here's an example. Um, these sort of Calvinist Aristotelians, as they are, think that, um, think that you have to derive your philosophy from the Bible. That's, that's, as it were, the bedrock. And so as long as your philosophical views are in, in sync with the Bible, then they're at least, as it were, worthy of consideration. And as they see it, Cartesianism, particularly in some of its physical principles, is out of sync. For example, they read the Bible as offering support for an anti-Copernican 
position. And they appeal to the, you know, the battle of Joshua with the Ammonites where the sun stands still in the sky. And they infer that the author of that passage was not a Copernican, whereas Cartesians are Copernicans. So that's, as it were, the kind of dispute that they're having fundamentally, I think. Anyway, to get back to Spinoza, when he when he produces this sort of um, tidied up version of the first part of Descartes' principles, where what he does is to instead of just sort of explaining the the view as Descartes does in his principles, he puts it all in so called geometrical order. He turns it into a series of proofs and demonstrations. Um, he is he's kind of um, announcing that he is a Cartesian. You know, he's sort of publicly joining himself with that group. So that's, I think, part of the motivation for for writing that. Um, but also, I mean, he is profoundly engaged with Cartesianism, so there's obviously a prior right. philosophical interest. Right. And something that a modern reader might not appreciate as I understand it, um, is the word philosophy and philosophizing from a Spinozistic perspective is much more akin to what today we might regard as mathematical or scientific insofar as Spinoza is looking to use philosophy to establish knowledge that he regards as certain, just like mathematical certainty. And so my sense is, when he talks about um, philosophical understanding and philosophical approaches, he's aiming for mathematical certainty. Um, is that would that be a fair uh, assessment, or, or, yeah. or, or not? I mean, I think that's right. That is his aspiration. You know, he says, "I'm going to treat all these psychological and moral matters that I discuss in the ethics as though it were a matter of lines and planes." <laughs> You know, as though we were just doing geometry and our conclusions were as certain as geometrical ones. And as you know, geometry was always treated as a sort of paradigm of certainty and clarity and deductive reasoning. So so it's perfectly true that that does seem to be his aspiration. And I think that, I mean, in a way that's quite in a line with Descartes. You know, Descartes doesn't always bother to do that, but he doesn't ever say you couldn't. And so it's as though Spinoza is taking Descartes' work and saying, okay, well, let's tidy this up. But but then he, of course, much later, he's carrying that over into his own magnum opus, The Ethics, where he's, you know, starting from his own principles and deducing his own conclusions. Right. But he doesn't write the the Tractatus, uh, you call it the TTP, which is a much more intelligent way of doing it because I'm going to stumble over the words, but the, Theological Politicus, is that, is that political? Okay. Now I'm looking at your book, you see, to try to... Yeah. The Theological Political Treatise is not written like that, no. And I think it's um, it's it's not, as it were, strictly speaking, a work of philosophy, And it's written for a different kind of audience. Because obviously if you write in this very arcane way, you're writing for a particular set of people who know how to deal with that stuff. Right. And the TTP is written, I think, for a much broader audience of educated but ordinary people. And it's written 
in prose. Mm -hmm. So, so here we are. We're we're now in the where are we? Sixteen sixties? There, there are sixteen seventies. When when does this come out? Six, no, he died in what is it? It's 70 published something. in sixteen seventy, but he's writing it from sixteen sixty five. Right. Yeah. So we're in sixteen sixty five, and uh, Descartes has come and gone, and there are all sorts of controversies within contemporary Dutch society. Um, in terms of the appropriateness of teaching uh, Cartesian philosophy. At the same time, um, uh, living in Holland is, and I can say this because my wife is Dutch, so I know Holland is really a province and all the rest of this, but I, <laughs> I uh, we can... <laughs> <laughs> so um, li living, living in, uh, in Holland at the time, um, is also considered by many people to be um, the most liberal and progressive environment, notwithstanding the controversies that I hope we're going to uh, that, that we'll get to momentarily. Um, and that's, of course, the principal reason why Descartes was had been there to begin with. Yes. Um, so, what's going on with him? Why does he Why does he write it, and who is he writing it for? Maybe just a tiny bit about the sort of political environment yes. at the time. So the quarrel that we we were just discussing between Cartesians and sort of scholastic Aristotelians, the sort of political theological quarrel, escalates very quickly from the early 50s into a, a, a major sort of theological-political split as well. Um, because... People who are Cartesians roughly ally themselves with the Republican Party, and people who are um, scholastic Aristotelians roughly ally themselves with the Stadtholders Party, with the kind of proto-monarchical figure in the Constitution. And there's a therefore a political struggle for power that goes on, which is aligned with a theological struggle about, as it were, who has control over religion and how much freedom of religion there is, and um, at the same time, a philosophical struggle. Are we Cartesians? Do we allow Cartesians? So it's a very complicated set of sort of uh, situations. And throughout the 1650s, I think that as this thing is sort of comes to be held stable, and the grand pensionary of the time, the leader of the government, of it um, uh, holds things in balance right. but in the 60s um, in the early 60s he starts to lose power the situation becomes more perilous the sort of right-wing party as it were the, the Stadtholders party gains influence and so the situation of radical Cartesians such as Spinoza becomes more vulnerable so you might think that's a good time to keep quiet <laughs> But uh, that's not what Spinoza does at all. So he he says, writing to Oldenburg, that he he feels that he has to speak out for the freedom to philosophize, and he also has to, as it were, put the record straight with people who say that he's an atheist. So somebody is complaining about him. We don't really know a great deal about exactly who, and he decides to, as it were, produce a, a book. And the point of the book, he says, is to show that the freedom to philosophize and 
the freedom to pursue your own religious views are not only compatible with the security of the state, but they're also conditions of the security of the state. Right. So that's the plan. <laughs> and, and so he comes out with this, and what's the reaction? The reaction when he publishes it, when it's um, finished in 1670, and the reaction is fairly virulent. He's widely attacked, indeed, as an atheist and for holding views that are heretical. This isn't at all surprising. He does say some very radical and dramatic things, and he must have known that that would happen. Yes. Um, so he doesn't, I don't think, I don't think he, you know, he's particularly sh shaken by it. So one of Hans's stubbornness, or in, in keeping with his stubbornness, as you were saying. Yeah. One of the things that he sets in his sights is this notion of superstition. And he accuses the reigning Dutch Reformed clergy, the anti-Cartesian wing, the right wing, whatever, however one would like to uh, describe it, um, or at least he insinuates that they are people who rely upon superstition. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, he not only insinuates, I mean, he really, <laughs> <laughs> he vilifies them in the opening chapter of his book. So, I mean, that isn't a very sort of diplomatic move. So Spinoza holds the, the philosophical view that... Um, in our ordinary ways of engaging with the world, we're as we're very susceptible to our passions, and we're very susceptible to so we imagine the world um, in ways that we find frightening. I'm contracting various complexities there, but so one of the things that fear can do to you, he thinks, is to, is to make you superstitious. By which he doesn't just mean make you have sort of crazy beliefs, but make you as kind of inherently fearful of everything and unable to cope with the world. So it can, in its extreme forms, produce really conditions of complete breakdown. People don't sleep, they, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves. And... So he regards, uh, but he regards um, superstition in general as an extraordinarily damaging thing uh, because it makes people afraid, that in turn makes them aggressive. And it puts them sort of in the grip of a kind of fear that they haven't got a way to cope with, yeah. partly because it's very undirected. Just everything becomes frightening is how he thinks about it. And he thinks that um, a lot of these, the Reformed Church's preachers, I don't suppose this is completely wrong, are sort of fermenting superstition in their sermons. You know, they're breathing hellfire at people. They're telling them that they're hopelessly lost, that they have no chance of salvation and so on. And that this produces a kind of condition of intellectual stasis, as it were. People just stop being able to think for themselves. Mm. And he also thinks that the officials of the church... Um, are cynical in doing this. You know, they're doing it to manipulate bolster people. their own, manipulate people to bolster their own prestige. And I think he also thinks that, in a way, they too may be in the grip of superstition sometimes. You know, that they've they've lost it. So he regards this as a very widespread form of corruption 
um, and it's sort of the antithesis as far as he's concerned of what religion ought to be. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's interesting because from a modern perspective, you could imagine that this guy is the Richard Dawkins of his age. You could imagine that he's accusing the priesthood of manipulating the people. He believes in the power of rationality and rational thought. And he would be one of these virulent reason above all atheistically oriented natural science type of people that we see around us today. And I suppose it's a matter of debate whether that categorization is appropriate, but at least by his own words, he certainly says that he is somebody who is um, a religiously oriented person, and he goes to a great deal of trouble in this work to establish his religious credentials. He examines um, prophecy, he, he examines uh, revelation, he examines the Bible, he, he examines the Bible to establish uh, not only his credentials, but apparently an argument for what the Bible is actually saying, which one could imagine would certainly step on a lot of people's toes who are in the business of using the Bible. I'm not asking the question, which I should be doing, but which I'll get to in a moment. Um, but what's, what's curious to me is that he's, um, he does embrace the Bible, and he does want to show um, his religious credentials very, very strongly. And I guess a question that I have as I'm, as I'm reading your book and as I'm occasionally going back to his book is, does he really believe this? Or is this an argument on his part? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of debate about this. I mean, some people think of him as somebody who is a completely, as it were, naturalistically inclined philosopher and who doesn't really have any theological interest. I don't agree with that at all. I think he's completely sincere in his arguments about the Bible. They're not always very good arguments, mm. you know, just if you look at them from scratch, but I don't think that that undermines his sincerity. So I think he's doing two things. And first of all, he's arguing with his opponents on their own territory on the grounds that as well, that will be the only way to even enter into conversation with them. So they think that everything comes from the Bible. All right. No. And, but also in addition to that, I think that he's working out an argument about the way that imagining works and a lot of you know, the way that we work psychologically um, through the case of the Bible. And it's really tremendously interesting, his view. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Um, describe um, the difference between uh, imagining and being philosophical and using philosophical rigor, according to Spinoza's definitions. Well, there's a kind of a... I mean, there's a sort of schematic way to put this, and then I think what he actually does is more complicated. But what he says is that um, there are there are two sort of ways of thinking. There's a philosophical way of thinking, which is as a way you start out from, you deal with general matters, you're not interested in particulars, and you start out with some truths, you know, some axioms, principles that, um, and you infer other truths from them. So it's a very 
general and self-contained and supposedly certain form of thinking. And then by contrast with that is imagining which is the ordinary, messy way we think. We rely on our sensory perceptions. We're rooted in our experience of particulars. We are, you know, we remember things. We fantasize about things. We're all in a bit of a mess and a muddle. That's mm. imagining. Right. And um, the Bible, Spinoza thinks, falls into the category of an imaginative work. So I want to get into the Bible as a narrative and, and the idea of, of why we should pay attention to it from Spinoza's perspective. But before I do, it seems to me that a point worth highlighting is uh, this whole notion of prophecy and prophets. Um, because uh, my understanding is that the religious establishment would look at these individuals, the prophets of the Bible, as people who were the vessels of God, and therefore uh, um, paragons not only of virtue and morality, but also of every other human quality, intellect, ability, and so forth. And Spinoza disagrees with this, uh, as I understand it, and says, well, they, they, were, they were clearly uh, wonderful people from, again, my words, <laughs> from a moral perspective. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they were the brightest people in the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that they, they, they were the most rigorous in terms of philosophical ability. Um, they were people who were particularly perspicuous in terms of their imaginative faculties. Is that, is that a fair, fair, fair statement? Uh, and, and you can see that by saying this, he's doing two things. He's clearly setting up a divide between the faculty of imagination and philosophical rigor. Um, but he's also going to be raising the hackles of many people within the established religious uh, community. Did, did people latch on to this specific aspect right away, or were there other things that were more damning about some of his analysis? No, you're absolutely right. This is one of the things that, as it were, went to the heart of the, the quarrel, because um, maybe the first step is that Spinoza is opposing people who think, as you say, that the prophets speak with the voice of God. And and this is, you know, this is in the catechism of the Dutch Reformed Church and so on at the time. So it's an absolutely standard view. And his first objection is to say, look, um, you know, God isn't the sort of creature, being, thing, who speaks to anybody. This, is a, this kind of anthropomorphic construction of God is, is just completely unviable. But nonetheless, there is something amazing about the prophets, as you say, so what is it? So then other people have said the prophets have astonishing intellects, they know all this amazing physics and stuff, and they also have wonderful imaginations because they tell us these beautiful stories that, you know, move us, make us want to be good. And Spinoza says that they don't have fantastic intellects. There's absolutely no evidence for that because they say all sorts of things that we know to be wrong. But they do have amazing imaginations. That's to say, they're people who, as it were, are sensitized to the world and their situations in ways that most of us aren't. And they're able, therefore, to make suggestions and predictions about what's going to happen and how we ought to behave and, as it were, what will be good for us in a way that we find or that the people they're talking to 
find compelling. And this is a view that is not, as we're sort of completely opposed to things that his opponents are saying. They too think that, you know, that the prophets speak with the vulgar. And they too think that, as it were, you have to make some discriminations between, you know, when people are prophesying and when they're not, and so forth. But Spinoza's view is just, as it were, harder hitting. Right. In, in that, it says, you don't have to worry about this biblical physics. As far as physics, and, you know, by which he means natural philosophy is concerned, you don't have to take the prophet seriously at all. Right. Yeah. So, so the one issue which I think bears repeating um, that you had alluded to is this notion of, um, in, in Joshua, the, the quote that the sun is standing still during a battle, which implies that well, normally the sun is moving, but if one is a Copernican, one says, um, well, the sun's actually never moving, it's, it's us who are moving. And, and, yes. Um, I, I wanted to talk about this idea of accommodation that, yes. that you're alluding to, because um, on the one hand, you could, you could argue, well, the prophets are all-knowing, or at least, maybe not all-knowing, but, but uh, extremely well-established individuals with this incredibly high intellect. And when they are using metaphors and analogies and so forth, they are doing it in such a way to best communicate to the people, to the vulgar, the whatever, the, yeah. um, the, the normal people. And so they are deliberately suppressing their insights suppressing their insights or, or, or speaking in a way which may not be literally true but is is the best possible way to communicate the insights to the to the masses and so forth and it seems to me that this this cuts both ways because on the, on the one hand Spinoza is aware of the fact that um, yes this does happen all the time and yes it is important to be able to to use the Bible as a, as a narrative form to be able to, it's a good thing to be able to share with other people. Um, but on the other hand, it seems to me that uh, if what he is saying, if according to him, these people do not have the highest possible level of intellect, they actually really believe these particular stories. I think he thinks they do. I don't think he thinks they're pulling the wool over people's eyes. But that in, in telling these stories, what they're doing is as we're conveying these insights as in, the, in the only way that they know how, which is as narrative and as we're in the context of a, an audience to whom they're speaking. And one of the advantages of this, Spinoza thinks, is that you can explain the behaviour of prophets just in terms of human psychology. Right. You don't have to appeal to divine intervention or anything to illuminate what's going on. So there's that. There's the fact that the prophets aren't necessarily these supermen. Um, one can understand the dynamics by appealing to human psychology. And then there's looking at the Bible itself and recognizing that through a very clear and precise hermeneutical understanding of the Bible um, and historical understanding and linguistics and linguistical analysis, one can draw all sorts of conclusions that certainly highlight the fallibility of the of the Bible itself. That there were problems in terms of historical translation. That it's certainly not a a, a perfect representation of the mind of God. That that words have evolved, and so the reason why words were uh, this way rather than that way is because people forgot the old definitions of words and so forth. And 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 you can clear up all sorts of mysteries by looking at this as a work that was actually written 
by men. Yes. And so it seems to me that if you believe that prophets can be understood as people who have this remarkable degree of, uh, of imagination and, and, and they have a, a high degree of sensitivity in terms of psychology, how they, how they interact with other individuals. If you believe that the Bible is something that is not the inviolate work of God, but is in fact a work of men over the centuries, which has morphed into this and that as, as things tend to do, then the obvious question is, well, why should we really pay attention to any of this at all? Yeah, exactly. And Spinoza, Spinoza addresses that question in a, in a way which is also, <clears throat> to his contemporaries, very disturbing. Because he says, look, what, what makes the Bible sacred, and means we should pay attention to it, is that for us here and now, it's an extremely important source of ideas which help us to live well. They help us to live in a, a pious and religious fashion. Um, but if they didn't, it would cease to be sacred. And the implication is that other things might be sacred exactly. too. I mean, and, and I think Spinoza directly faces that. One of his uh, one of his critics says, "Well, look, you know, as far as you're concerned, the Quran is could be sacred." And he says, "Well, yes, it could." And you know, so might other works of literature. So, so he opens up that very interesting question of whether, I mean, of whether the dependence on the Bible is a sort of contingent, local, historical matter that happens to work for us, but it doesn't mean that it would work for everybody. So there's this there's this battleground, as I see it, between the theologians and the philosophers, and. They're the theologians that say everything must be subsumed by theology, including philosophy, and the philosophers who say, no, philosophy is triumphant and, and, and theology is in fact subsumed by philosophy. Now it looks like Spinoza is certainly a member of that latter group, but he does a bit of gymnastics to try to establish some sort of balance and say, well, actually, no, it's not the case that one is subsumed by the other, but they're just two very distinct realms. So uh, my first question is, do you think he's successful in establishing that, that balance? And the second question is, um, why do you think he does that anyway? Well, to answer the first question, we need to say a little bit about how he tries to pull these two apart. And here he takes um, a tack which is not completely novel to him, although he, as usual, gives it a twist. So he pulls them apart by saying, Theology and um, philosophy are really doing quite different things. Philosophy is after the truth, um, but theology is after what he calls obedience or piety. So we need to perhaps just drop back a tiny bit and say that Spinoza's investigation of the Bible leads him to the conclusion that, as it were, there is a moral teaching of the Bible um, which you can extract from the, the prophecies of the whole lot. And that is just that you ought to love God and love your neighbor. It's an ethical teaching. It's nothing to do with physics. So, so then what uh, the Bible requires us to do, what true religion amounts to, is just to do that. And the point of the Bible is how well, and you know, the question is that you've just been asking is how well does it do that? So now, 
Um, the point of religion is to, as it were, learn to live like that. That's what it is to be a properly religious person. And the job of theology is to sort of help us. And uh, so these two projects are on the face of things separate. And Spinoza wants to say, well, you know, each is just its own thing. And each can let the other be. They don't have to quarrel. As a matter of fact, though, it's not quite so simple because Spinoza thinks that philosophy, like theology, can also vindicate moral doctrines. So the truths of, that you can extract from the Bible, you can also work out philosophically. Which gives you certainty as well, presumably, right? Yeah. It looks as though that's a, it kind of in the long run, if you're philosophically minded, you, you are going to think that you are in the position to sort of test out the truth of what the theologians are saying in your own terms. And so it looks as though philosophy therefore has a kind of domination over theology. And another asymmetry, of course, is that philosophy ranges over all sorts of things, whereas theology, as Spinoza has presented it, has a very limited role. Right. It's just about these doctrines and how to realize them. So I'm sympathetic to what he's saying as it happens, but I recognize that the way it would appear if I were a 17th century religious uh, person in the Netherlands, or what later became the Netherlands. United Provinces. United Provinces, right. Thank <laughs> you. Um, so if I were a, a religious uh, s uh, person in the 17th century United Provinces, it would seem to me what he's saying is, okay, right, if you're, if you're a good philosopher and you're really clever and you're hardworking and uh, uh, industrious, then you can go from here to there and and eventually after some time in trouble you'll have some moral certainty that is um, associated with this the sorts of truths that um, that one would normally associate with religion and the bible and so forth if you're not such a good philosopher um, well then here's this wonderful narrative little story that you can uh, you can grasp some lessons from and you can you can derive some moral advancement from but uh, but that's uh, so that's what it seems to me he's saying and that seems like a fairly condescending view uh, for somebody who's religious and who believes in the primacy of theology well he doesn't believe in the primacy of theology he believes that they're no, that's what I'm saying. It would seem condescending if you were that with somebody who believes in the primacy ah, of theology. I see what you mean. Yes, absolutely. I think it did. And what can we say in Spinoza's defense? Well, perhaps that um, he thinks that, as it were, this capacity for reasoning is in all of us quite limited, and that we rely to a great extent on imagining. So that take, you know, even the best philosopher. So it isn't as though they will be able to do kind of everything in the philosophical mold and they will never have any need of the kind of imaginative support that the Bible might give them. So you're dealing with people who are, as it were, not falling neatly into two camps, but who are always sort of somewhere in between. Each of us relies on both. But the imaginative effort, Spinoza thinks, can, you know, because, as we were saying, it can take many forms. Um, I think that's what's really troubling from, from the theological point of view, because it looks as though, I mean, you know, we might have our own imaginative worlds which help us to 
observe the tenets of true religion and it doesn't doesn't seem that they need to be very closely related to anything that's in the Bible. Right, it could be the Quran or something, as you said before. Or, no sac- or nothing that we recognize even as a sacred book. Right. Yeah. So if, if one is watching this or listening to this, I can imagine one says, okay, well, this is all very interesting. If I happen to be a 17th century um, individual living in the United Provinces, theologically inclined or otherwise. Yeah. Um, but I thought the whole point of what he was trying to do wasn't necessarily to pick a fight with the theologians or not pick a fight with the theologians, but was to demonstrate that the ability to philosophize was in fact necessary for um, a thriving society and in fact necessary for the welfare of, of the republic where he, where he found himself. So there's this whole political aspect of this which has to tie in. So how does all this theology, how, how do all these disputes about, about theological orientation and, uh, versus philosophy, how does, how does that somehow get turned into a political direction? Well, the end of Spinoza's theological section, the theological section of the argument, is that um, the teaching of the Bible is very minimal. Um, it's one that we can learn in the imaginative ways we've just been discussing. Insofar as we live like that, we live, we do everything that religion requires of us. Um, and then there's a sort of in brackets, there are some sort of tenets of religion that you have to believe in order to do that. Um, but basically, our religious faith is displayed in our works. It's just a matter of living cooperatively, really. That's what it is to be a religious person. Now, then the question is, all right, so you have to live cooperatively. What's the relation of that to the state? And so Spinoza says, this kind of cooperative life that I'm imagining here, or I'm advocating here, is a life where people live justly. But you can only live justly in the state where you live under an effective law. What kind of state might that be? Well, that has to be a state, Spinoza says, in which, as it were, you have a single sovereign. And here he's engaging in a debate about you know, whether the state should be ruled by the church or the, or the um, civil authorities. And he comes down completely on the side of the civil authorities. So he says you have to live in a state where, as it were, the civil authorities, the civil sovereign, decrees what the law is, what counts, in effect, as living justly and thus obeying God. And unless you have somebody to tell you what that is, you won't manage to do it because there'll be no shared norms and you'll just end up fighting each other. So right. you won't do it anyway. Right. So, so that's the link. The link is, if that's what religion is, then um, we have to have some kind of political authority that will enforce it. What sort of authority will enforce it? The state and, in particular, a civil sovereign. And so then we move into the question of, all right, so how much religious freedom and religious leeway, as it were, should a sovereign offer in order to make the state do its job, which is to allow us to live justly and cooperatively, allow us to live peacefully and securely. Right. That's the and, outline. And, and how 
can this be interpreted as a recipe for religious plurality or, or at least tolerance amongst yeah. different yeah. religious orientations? I think that's a really important bit because Spinoza is saying, look, the requirements for living religiously are very minimal. Um, and there are lots of ways you can do it. So, as it were, no one can say that, you know, you have to believe this doctrine or that dogma, or you have to worship in this way, or you have to worship in that. So everything that I'm telling you is compatible with quite a lot of religious pluralism. So we've got these religious reasons for allowing pluralism. And the question is, what are the political reasons for allowing pluralism? And Spinoza's view is that a sovereign, as it were, willing, will maintain its own power best if it doesn't try to suppress people. This is an entirely sort of pragmatic point. Um, but that the sovereign has to take responsibility for deciding when a pluralistic way of life actually threatens the security of the state. Uh, so it's the security of the state which is the crucial thing the sovereign has to look after. And it sees the question of religious pluralism in that light. So we want a sovereign that, as it were, will allow as much religious pluralism as, compat as is compatible with the security of the state. Then Spinoza has a vague, uh, quite a lot of arguments about how you know states flourish in various ways from being pluralistic politically. And then he says, uh, you know, nonetheless, somebody does have to draw the line. Somebody has to say when the arguments that people are offering are um, seditious, and they really do threaten the fabric of the state. And that's the job of the sovereign. So that's the story. And by a sovereign, of course, he doesn't necessarily mean one individual or monarch. He just means ruling body of some sort. Yes, that's right. The ultimate power in the state. And in the kind of state that Spinoza is, is talking about, I mean, in, in the TTP, he's talking about what he calls a republic. And I think he thinks that a republic can take a number of constitutional forms. But it seems as though he's saying a more democratic republic is liable to be more secure if its institutions are properly organized. Because um, after all, what you're trying to do is to create, as it were, maximally fruitful conditions of security and peace within the state. And the way to do that is on the whole to include people and allow them to voice their opinions rather than to stop them from doing that. Yes. So um, in the last work he writes, the Tractatus Politicus, which is unfinished and never published in his lifetime, um, he talks about various different kinds of constitutions which he thinks are all stable states. And the thing that's striking about them is that though one, some of them are called monarchies and some of them are called aristocracies, um, they're all, as it were, very broad-based. You know, they have big assemblies where they have a king, they have tons of advisors and right. a very sort of complex system of, you know, this assembly that makes decisions and gives advice to that assembly and so on. Didn't he, weren't his last words mentioning a democracy qua democracy? Because I've heard some people try to justify this claim. I mean, 
people try to justify famous philosophers as everything, right? So I, I've heard some people try to say, well, he was really a Democrat. He was really, he was really a, the equivalent of a modern day Democrat. And he was saying something right about that, right in the, the last few words before, uh, before he stopped. It's true because the last chapter of the TP is called On Democracy. And it's, I, I don't know, two and a half pages or something. So it doesn't really get going. But what it does contain, which is, I mean, which is upsetting, really, is a, a very a vitriolic attack on the role of women rulers. And I think it is important to acknowledge that Spinoza's idea of a broadly based state is by our standards not democratic at all. Sure. Let me get to a, a problem that I've always had with all of Spinoza's writings. And maybe this is just naive, but so my understanding of a core aspect of his, his philosophy is he makes some equivalent, I'm not talking about the Tractatus, but some, some fundamental equivalence between God and nature, and by nature meaning the laws of nature. And that's one of the reasons why many scientists ever since were invoking Spinoza as this yeah. wonderful figure. And Einstein famously said when he was badgered uh, uh, as to what God he believes in and what does he believe in God, he said, I believe in the God, God of Spinoza. Spinoza. And yeah. it's, it's never clear whether Einstein said that because he just wanted the reporters to go away. They were able to <laughs> ask him whether he actually really believed that. But uh, there were a whole lot of things uh, about which one can say that when it comes to Einstein. But this notion of God being equivalent to the laws of nature is a belief that many working physicists and mathematicians have, I think. Yeah. There's this idea of these laws and that through rational inquiry and cultivating our philosophical understanding, meaning you know, learn how to solve mathematical equations and do all the rest of this kind of stuff, at least in the, the present day understanding, uh, you'll get, you'll, you'll, understand what these laws are. So in modern day parlance, we would talk about the theory of everything, right? And so there'd be some great cosmological equation out there. Um, my, so I'm setting up my confusion. It's taking me a while. Um, the second part of this is that as per all philosophers at this time, um, right up until the 20th century, the laws of nature, the laws of physics were deterministic. And so to understand nature, there was this deterministic, you'd understand these conditions and then everything would follow from that. And I think there are parts in the Tractatus when people say, well, what about determinism? And he says, yes, well, things are deterministic, but it's just really complicated and we can't, <laughs> we can't figure them out. I think something like that. We just don't know, know enough. Right, we don't yeah. know enough. Yeah. But here's my problem with all of this. If you really believe in the equivalence between God and nature, and if you really believe that there are fundamental laws that are deterministic, that are governing everything, whether or not we can penetrate them or not is another question, then why do you bother writing works of philosophy at all? Why do you try to convince people that it should be this way and not that way and try to give advice to people that they should live their lives like this and live their lives like that? I mean, wouldn't it be more consistent to say, well, look, everything is the way it is. It's going to play out according to some big equation somewhere. Um, and why should I even bother doing that? Do you see my problem, first oh, of all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. and Spinoza, as well, makes it very hard for himself. He gives himself this problem in a very intense form because he says, well, you know, you don't have any free will. It's just an illusion that you do. It's merely the, your lack of understanding of the causes which are 
acting on you. So his way of dealing with this problem is to sort of start from inside the system. I think there's something slightly misleading about presenting him as a modern style natural philosopher who thinks, as okay, there's the universe, stroke God, and as it were, now we are setting out to understand it as though we were somewhere else. I mean, we're in it, and our understanding of it is always shaped by what we are. And for Spinoza, the point of understanding it is to live well. I mean, it's to, to live happily. That's what the ethics is about. So in that way, his philosophy is much more classically oriented than your account suggests. I mean, it's, the philosophy is the art of living well. So as to the determinism, I mean, Spinoza, as it were, tries to overcome this by arguing that every individual thing within this determined universe you or me, the stone, you know, has what he calls a conatus. That's it's a kind of striving to empower itself. Mm. So it has a sort of power of moving itself, which is its essence. So that um, as well, rather than thinking of ourselves as just kind of passive bits of stuff, which are being knocked around by other bits of stuff, you have to think of yourself as a bit of stuff which is being you know, subjected to all sorts of pressures and understandings and so forth, but which is, as it were, sort of intrinsically geared to resist some of them and to move towards some of them. And then there's a obviously a very complicated story in the case of something as elaborate as a human being, you know, which is that the character of your striving is internally your conatus, your striving to keep yourself as to keep yourself in being and to make yourself more powerful, that's basically what it amounts to, is, as it were, very complex. And you have your own sort of internal rules, if you like, you know, your own internal manifestations of the laws of nature which are governing this. So there is, of course, from the perspective of the mind of God, the absolutely perfect story, I mean, that there is a... Um, an eternal view of what's happening, you know, and nothing can happen that isn't necessary and that isn't determined. But your experience of it is never like that. And your life is your experience of trying to make yourself more powerful, which may or may not succeed. But when you do make yourself more powerful, Spinoza thinks you also make yourself more happy. So it's unfair for me to pester you because I understand that you're not Spinoza. Um, but I guess it's just irritating to me because I just don't, at some level, I just don't understand. The, the Conatus is another thing which has always bothered me. And I'll tell you why it's bothered me. <laughs> so it's bothered me because it seems like it's either superfluous or it's this, it's this bizarre teleological business. Things just want to do what they want to do. And it's very, it seems very Aristotelian, so what do I mean by teleological? Well, I mean, you know, the old Aristotelian physics, a rock will fall because it wants to be with the other rocks and all the rest of this kind of stuff. It wants to go to the rock level and so forth. So, and maybe I'm colored in my confusion by the fact that I, I do have this training in 
I was going to say 21st, but let's just stick to 20th century uh, science. So I yeah. think, okay, I get this idea of the laws of nature, yeah. and maybe I'm just mindlessly copying what Einstein is doing. But I think if you have this understanding of the laws of nature, if you really believe in determinism, which yeah. is that everything is determined, and maybe I can't understand it from God's perspective or something, then that takes into account, surely, that people want to be people, and rocks want to be rocks, and trees want to be trees, and there's, you know, these are just little micro slices of all of this stuff that's actually going on. So maybe I'm just repeating myself, but, but I'm stuck on this, because part and parcel of determinism is that things are just going to happen. Um, and we, whether or not we understand how they're going to happen is fine, but if we can actually change things, if I can say to you, look, uh, you will lead a better life if you do this, as opposed to doing that, then that seems to deny determinism, doesn't it? I mean, this is, this is the problem of determinism, isn't it? Because when we think about the world as governed by these inexorable laws, it makes us feel powerless. Right. But what Spinoza is saying is that, as it were, your powers are part of this system, and you are bound to exercise them. I mean, that's, as it were, part of the determinism. You can't not strive to persevere in your being and that means as well that you will um, you will strive to do that he also thinks that understanding things is part of the system if you see what i mean yeah. so that i mean so that although as we say from the god's eye perspective um the whole thing i mean you know there's no there's no play um from your perspective, as it were, what you're striving to do uh, will depend on, as it were, how much you manage to understand. And of course, you know, you experience the world temporarily. And so, as it were, you're continually, as it were, finding yourself in a situation where so you don't know how things are turning out and you're trying to make them turn out in a particular way. And of course, you're subject to all sorts of other causal interactions or pressures in the process. Right. You know, you say to me, I shouldn't do that if I were you. And that has a causal effect on me and it modifies what I do. And then that experience of acting in that way in turn feeds back into my future patterns of action and so on. So that I'm a constantly sort of evolving being, that's to say the amount of power that there is in me in relation to other things is continually undergoing change. And I experience this as an adventure, and I can't not. I experience it as a sort of striving and you know, constant struggle. So I'm fine with all of that, and this is actually very much in accordance with what I believe. Yeah. But I believe in free will. You see, my, 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 my yeah. problem is that I believe when I counsel you, and I, I don't want to, you know, this is, you're not Spinoza and you're not responsible for all, for yeah. all of this, I realize. Um, but if I say, look out for that rock or do this, and I feel that I have a causal effect on you, it, intellectually it means that you could have gone this way or you could have gone that way. And, uh, or, or it, it, it means that at least the end point, wherever it happens to be, maybe you could have gone in 17 different ways and that, and that according to the God's eye view, you would have wound up over there anyway or something like that. Maybe there is some redundancy in the system. But everything that I do in my day-to-day -day life is predicated upon the idea that that causal effect can actually nudge you uh, in, a, 
and if not a unique direction, at least a direction which would would put you in a different end end point somewhere else down the road. Do you understand what I'm where I'm? Yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's just a problem that I have with anybody who's a strict determinist, as he yes. is. It seems to me, at some level, it doesn't make any sense to be a strict determinist on the one hand, and then say to someone else, let me tell you how you should live your life in a better way. Um, and, and, and I can accept the fact that um, I'm, I'm proving uh, ridiculously hard to derail on this point, so I should probably get away from it. But it, it's just it's something that I've always had with Spinoza. I was thinking, yeah. yes, 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 this makes sense. Yes, this makes sense. And then I get to this strict determinism bit, and then I say, well, that just, that just invalidates everything that you're trying to tell me. Because if it's true that, that I'm going to wind up according to some, just like the stone and the rock and everything else over here, then why should I bother? And why should you be bothering to tell me? And, and how is it possible that I could imagine that there's a prescription for living a better life at the same time believing in a deterministic system? I have the same problem with, you know, with the, with the Dutch reform guys as well, except I just don't agree with them, so it's not a problem. Yeah. No, well, that's right. I mean, for these, for these early modern determinist serious ones like Hobbes and Spinoza, of course it is a problem. I mean, there's lots of kind of, you know, lots of things to say here. But maybe, I mean, maybe it's helpful to remember that, first of all, Spinoza thinks, that, thinks of the doctrine of free will as a doctrine of things that are completely uncaused. And he can't make sense of that idea thinks, you know, if something happens, it must be caused. And so there must be, as he sees it, just some very complicated causal story which is in operation such that when you tell me, um, you know, I should do that rather than that, if I were you, I may not, as it were, kind of know quite how the, I don't know how the causal story is going to come out, but, mm. but it does come out one determinate way and there's a causal story to be told about it retrospectively. That's one thing. Another thing, I suppose, is that, as it were, this idea of a, a universe which, um, which isn't structured in that way and which isn't explicable in that way is not attractive to Spinoza, you know, because he has this very strong, as we say, rationalist streak. I mean, he really does think that as well, everything's got to be explicable. And as far as he can see, it's got to be explicable in one system. It's got to be completely determinate. Otherwise, it's not fully explicable. Right. And so the pleasures of this explicable universe are greater for him than the, as it were, the sorts of worries that you're registering. Okay. Well, I, that's, again, I can't, um, I can't hold you to account for what, no, what he no. says. No, no. Does this I, bother you at all? When you, when you, or is it just, is it just me? When, I mean, do well, you, do well you... I just think about him as sort of of his historical era in right. this respect. And um, I'm more interested in, I mean, I, th I think you're right that, of course, there is a problem with this kind of metaphysical position. But I think that I'm more interested in sort of what he does, setting that on one side, than in, you know, beating my head against it. Right, <laughs> right. And, and, and also what effect he's had, presumably, on, on other thinkers and, and so forth. There seems to have been in the last um, little while, uh, if not a, a Spinozistic renaissance, at least uh, an increasing amount of interest 
okay to spin out. So would you would you agree with that? I think that's true in the Anglophone world. It's always been, as it were, very uneven. Um, when I first started to work on Spinoza, there were almost no books in the bookshop, you know. But if you went to a bookshop in Paris or uh, in Torino or somewhere, you know, there were shelves and shelves of work on, on Spinoza. And we've been catching up in the Anglophone community, I think. But it's quite true. It's a boom industry now. <laughs> yeah. and, and one person who certainly made Spinoza a, a major figure in, in, in his work is Jonathan Israel with the, the Radical Enlightenment and all the rest of that. So what are your thoughts on, the, first of all, maybe you can give a brief précis of what his views are and then, I'll, and then give me your sense of whether or not you agree or disagree or to what extent to agree or to what extent disagree. Well, Jonathan Israel thinks that um, Spinoza is the founder of an enormously long and influential movement that he calls Radical Enlightenment, which sort of results in us, you know, produces uh, modern-day liberalism, really. So he thinks of Spinoza as an advocate of all the things we know and love, democracy, freedom, um, religious toleration, rights, and, you know, just continue like that. And he has done a huge amount of really interesting research about Spinoza's influence. And so he, I think it is, who's responsible for absolutely kicking out the idea of Spinoza as an uninfluential ascetic who nobody ever read. He's shown that you know people knew about him all over the place, so he was influential. I don't really agree, in fact I don't agree with, the, with his interpretation, and he knows this, so I don't feel bad about saying it, um, in two ways. I mean, first of all, I think it's a, it's a kind of a teleological, grand narrative kind of history which um, you know, it's probably a mistake. But also, I just don't really think it's right that Spinoza exemplifies all these modern values. His conception of rights, for example, is absolutely drastically different from ours. He thinks that anything that it's in your power to do, it's you have a right to do. He's not really a Democrat, as far as I can see. He is an advocate of religious toleration, quite an unusual one in his time, and, and so on. So I think the picture is much more complicated. Other than Jonathan Israel, what other streams of, of spinocistic Anglophone scholarship are there, and how has he permeated into um, uh, the Anglophonic philosophical understanding? Well, I suppose in, in a number of ways. but. Um, I mean, in addition to this kind of resurgence of interest in Spinoza's political philosophy, which Jonathan Israel is a big part of, it would be worth picking out perhaps the great interest of um, Anglophone feminists in Spinoza. Um, and there, the doctrines that are important are Spinoza's emphasis on the centrality of the affects and imagination, and his claim that as well, the mind and the body are sort of one thing. You know, they're indistinguishable. So that he's seen as somebody who, um, in the 80s, there was a lot of writing about Spinoza as somebody who defied this kind of idea of binaries, you know, which had gendered connotations. You know, men are rational, women are emotional, women are associated with the body, men with the mind, and all that. So he gave a kind of way of thinking through those binaries, which 
has been, I think, really fruitful. It's really interesting. Notwithstanding his lapse into misogyny here and there and everywhere. Oh, well, no, I mean, of course, we all regret that, but then we, you know, <laughs> what can we do? <laughs> um, so that's, that's another important thing. And then very recently, I suppose, there's been a big resurgence of interest in Spinoza's metaphysics. It's interesting. I mean, for a while, there was this sort of kind of spreading out into the political and social, and now it seems to have gone back to the focus of interest that there were earlier. And you've given some thought to how Spinoza might uh, help us live better together. Uh, what sorts of ideas do you have there? What do you mean by that? Well, a couple of examples. I mean, there are, there are several things. As we've been saying, Spinoza advocates a kind of pluralist mode of philosophical life which is very much focused on sociability. Uh, I think Spinoza thinks that you can't really, as it will come to understand the world on your own, you've got to understand it in the community, and that the larger and more cohesive and peaceful and as well sort of creative the community, the better. So the, the philosophical project, if you like, is in part to create such a state. And that's interesting, sort of that kind of reading of philosophy as a fundamentally social project. Um, another thing is that um, Spinoza has this aversion of this kind of republican view of freedom as freedom from as well, arbitrary interference. And he thinks of philosophical understanding as collectively becoming increasingly able to protect yourself against things that arbitrarily affect you and make you sad, in his word, make you unhappy. And Society is obviously one of those forces. You know, we try to organize ourselves so as to protect ourselves against sadness as much as possible. But Spinoza is also interested in our relationship to the environment and mm. the broader environment. The last section of the ethics is all about how we live, not just in relation to each other, but in nature as a whole. And I think it's an implication of his view that one of the things we have to try and cope with as far as we can if we want to be free is that we have to try to organize our relationship to the environment in a way that, as it were, doesn't interfere more than necessary with our sustainable happiness. And that seems to have you know, very, very important implications for ecology and our attitude to climate change and the politics of that as well. Yes. So I think that's another area where he's extraordinarily fruitful, creative, unusual. And, and picking up on what you just said, in order to be free, this of course won't surprise you, but this makes me think of the conversation that I had with Quentin Skinner yeah. when he talked about freedom as a, a status as opposed to a, a predicate to action. And by being free, there is this idea that we are safeguarded from arbitrary interference, as you just said, giving the laws to ourselves. And Spinoza, um, of course, talks a lot about the laws and, and this and, and politics. And it seems like there are many aspects of this which are very germane to our day-to-day -day lives. And one can say, oh yes, well, this is all just some 17th century dusty philosopher somewhere who's writing this, and maybe Hobbes wrote that, and Spinoza wrote this, and so forth and so on. But as we 
struggle with not only issues such as climate change, but issues of surveillance all around us, issues of how much um, the government might know and might, uh, might change our actions in such a way that um, would be deleterious, not because of the particular action necessarily, but just because we feel ourselves subjected to the potential for arbitrary interference mm -hmm. here and there, then we are not actually... Free, no, because we're self-censoring. Right. Yes. Um, and I think this is something which other than the conversations I have with uh, various academics, I don't hear that much about in the, in the public realm. I don't hear people writing about this or talking about this. They talk about surveillance as a threat to privacy, but they don't talk about it as a threat to freedom and as a, this notion of self-censorship. Am I, am I wrong there? Or is this, is this something that you have detected is a prevalent theme that people are paying attention to and that, and that a careful reading of some of these classical philosophers and others could help inform them of a, 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 a different sort of opinion? Or is this just basically ignored? Kind of somewhere between. I mean, I, th you know, I, th I think there is an attention to this among people who are interested in republicanism and both in academic life and to some extent in public life, that view of liberty seems to be sort of gaining traction. But I think that um, what you say about self-censorship is very important and that when Spinoza talks about the freedom to philosophize, and that's one of the, that is precisely the issue that he's dealing with. He's saying, you know, you don't want a society where people don't feel free to express their views you know, for a number of reasons that we're very familiar with. It's bad for them, it's bad for the society, it breeds various kinds of resentments, it generates instabilities of various kinds. Whereas, as well, we're trying to hang on to some kind of uh, levels of freedom that we take ourselves to have acquired, he is, as it were, just at the beginning of that movement, and he's saying, yes, you know, come on, bring it on. Are we going in the right direction within the academy? Are we sponsoring enough critical thinking and free speech? Are we encouraging people to speak out and speak their minds and develop their minds uh, as, as much as we should? This is something I'm very interested in. I, I mean, I think, I think in our teaching we are. I mean, I think in our, in our research, life is getting more complicated. You know, we're subjected increasingly to um, the need to get funding for our research and somebody else is sort of deciding the terms of what we're able to do and how we're able to publish it. Well, that's interesting. So you're being subjected on the research side to some arbitrary power to some extent. I am not. <laughs> but okay, I think the, the, the system is becoming, as it were, less one where... You know, you just sort of decide what you want to do your research on and you do it. It's rather one where you, in order to do it, you have to get money to do it and therefore you have to make a case for it and somebody else as well decides whether that's worth doing. So, so one could say, you know, that potentially that's a source of arbitrary power. In fact, it's sort of bound to be in a way. I think there's some, that again, I mean, there's something very, very interesting that Spinoza has to say here because he's very interested, and this is related to what, you know, the problems you were raising earlier with his determinism, but he's very interested in the idea that in order to really pursue understanding, you have to cultivate this virtue that he calls fortitudo, uh, strength of mind or something like that. 
and that um, it's not easy. You know, but you you have to. Uh, one of the things that society needs to do is to cultivate conditions in which people can become a bit more tough-minded, a bit more determined, a bit less lazy, a bit less easily scared, and so on. And that's what it is to have fortitude. And unless we have that, he thinks, you know, we just can't make philosophical progress because philosophizing isn't easy. I'm trying to get a sense of the trends, which way the vector is going. Um, in your teaching and in your experience, can you make any, any blanket statements about whether we as a society, just through the window of your students, through the window of, of academe, are we making some sort of progress? Because one might be somewhat despairing. One might say, well, you know, there's this sheep mentality. People only respond to what's on Twitter and they're, they're not thinking very long. They're not, they're not subjecting themselves to some uh, uh, rigorous form of philosophizing that as a general rule, we're becoming more trivial and less reflecting as a society. Would you share those sentiments, or is that just scaremongering? <laughs> well, it's difficult to, you know, it's difficult to tell what's happening in a society when you're in it. But my own experience is, um, more locally, that increasing numbers of people are interested in philosophy, and that, um, you know, they're far from trivial. My students are as, you know, lively and inquiring and, you know, demanding as ever. And so I and I think that as well one of the reasons they love philosophy is precisely because that's what it gives them an opportunity to explore. And philosophy is taught in the high schools here. There are A levels in, in philosophy. Is there that are A levels in philosophy. Yes. And is it taught in uh, enough in, in in high schools? In your in your view, should it be taught uh, uh, more often, or is it taught well enough? Or what, what is your assessment of the way philosophy is generally speaking? I'm looking for broad generalities, of course. Well, I think, I think it's probably a good idea to make teaching philosophy in school voluntary. I, I don't think it, it's necessarily something you should have to do in school. It doesn't suit everybody. And um, you know, it also isn't as a sort of adapted to everybody in their teens. Teaching philosophy to primary school children seems to be rather successful. Really? They're, you know, they're very good at sort of logical puzzles and abstract questions and so forth. And so it may be that that would be a good idea, inculcate those sort of thoughts early and let them flower, you know, let them grow. Um, the philosophy that's taught in schools, I mean, the A-level curriculum and so forth, is fine. Um, it's not, to my mind, terribly exciting. There's an awful lot of, you know, sort of rather standard philosophy of religion in it. And so I think, in a way, it's a bit of a missed opportunity at the moment. You know, one could do something broader and more exciting. So what sorts of things would you do if you could... Wave a wand. Yes, if yeah. you could wave a wand. Well, I think I would want to teach a mixture of a, a kind of broad-based history of philosophy, um, and not just, you know, the odd author, but a sense of how philosophy changes and how its problems change and how they are responses to changing historical circumstances and things like that, so that you get an idea of philosophy as a cultural activity. And then, as it were, within that, maybe concentrate on certain kind of clusters of themes. I wouldn't myself make, as it were, God a, a particularly central theme. I, I just don't think that that philosophy is 
the most interesting to us now. You know, there's sort of tight-knit arguments about proofs of the existence of God and things like that, which people study. They're wonderful in their way, but it would be nice for people to learn a bit more about the mind and the mind's relation to the body. It would be nice for them to learn a bit more ethics. They do learn some ethics, actually. So, you know, I, I need to... You should take all this with a pinch of salt. I realize that you don't regard yourself as a as a as an expert in in high school pedagogy for philosophy, but I'm <laughs> that's sitting, certainly I'm, true. <laughs> I'm sitting opposite you, so I thought yeah. I thought I would ask. Let me conclude by asking you uh, a couple questions about your method and your orientation when you're when you're doing work. There are people who. Um, as they mix philosophical scholarship and historical scholarship, are looking at the work in and of itself and saying, this is a really interesting idea um, that perhaps not enough attention has been given to. There are people who are motivated by the fact that there may be aspects of the work that can inform our current understanding and help us on a societal level or in terms of scholarship, oh, we can understand this person better or that person better. And there are people who are, are just interested in, in examining people in their time and place and saying we should just look at, at these particular individuals and uh, the constraints that they were under to build a better historical understanding of this particular time and place. And doubtless there are many other categories and so forth. How would you evaluate your own scholarly motivations <laughs> I think I try to sort of combine a bit of all of them. I, I think that our philosophical work is always, as it were, motivated by something that has to do with us now. There's something in it that captures us now. And, you know, most of the time when we're working, we have to, um, you have to make a pitch. You have to say, you know, you should be interested in this because. And so relating the historical work that we do to issues that are of broader philosophical interest or some other kind of interest, maybe political, social, or whatever, seems to be unavoidable and also really good. You know, that is part of what we should be doing. Um, I suppose I don't think of myself as only just kind of drilling down into a particular figure and place, although, of course, it's easy to get fascinated and do that. Um, but I think the philosophical works are always, you know, they're always part of a conversation or indeed a struggle. And that in order really to understand them, you need to, you need to explain what's, what's going on more broadly. You know, who was this written for? Why did they write it? What are they combating? What do they want to achieve? Those sorts of questions. So that if one gets too internal, you know, uh, one, can, one can lose sight of that. And I, I think that's a loss in the way that some people do history philosophy. But at the same time, you know, we all, we all, of course, live on the fat, as it were, of people who work like that, don't we? You know, who edit texts and who provide us with wonderful accounts of somebody's work and so forth. It's the material that we all go on to use. Yeah. So they have to be there. <laughs> or at least life would be very hard if they weren't. <laughs> yeah. One, one last question that I normally reserve for scientists, but I'm going to ask you anyway, just for the heck of it. And, and um, so as, as you can tell when, when I ask the question, that um, it's a lot easier for most scientists to answer it, but, um, but maybe you have some clear answers as well. So my, my standard question is, if I were God, 
and I could answer any three questions that you have, um, what would they be? So you see, it's a lot harder for a philosopher to, to, to even imagine, at least for me, to even imagine these things. It's a lot easier for a molecular biologist to say, yes, I want to know how this connects to that and how yes. which protein is over here yeah. and, and, and so forth. I think perhaps one of the reasons that I, that I really do have trouble with this question is that philosophical questions, I think, are not really determinately answerable. You know, they're not ones that just get settled like that. So even God couldn't do it. That's, that's, a, that's a good answer. Um, do, is, is there anything that um, we've alighted or not spent enough time on or glossed over or anything that you think would benefit from any form of embellishment? Um, <laughs> Of course, there's a lot more we could say, but we've also said a lot. Oh, thanks a lot. I think we should do the we should do the handshake now because this is what I normally do. This is protocol. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you We're done. Yes. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume Two along with separate discussions with Brian Epstein, Honora O'Neill, Hazana Sharp, and Susan Wolfe. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.